Hello and welcome to another Kangaroo English Daily Digest podcast. My name is Christian and today is Thursday, the best day of the week. <laughs> This week I've been talking a lot about language and culture and today I'm going to continue to talk a bit about uh, language and culture and how language affects the way we think. And specifically, I'm going to be talking about language and sexism. But before I can do that, I want to talk about today's word of the day, which is actually the word free. F-R-E-E. Now, obviously, free is a very common word, but what's really interesting about it for me is its origin. So... If we look at the Proto-Indo-European word, free, the meaning is actually love. And so you start to wonder, well, what does free and freedom, what does that have to do with love? And to understand that, we have to think about the way that humans used to live. So... Back in the past, humans lived in, in, in tribes, in, in small groups. And within these, these groups, normally you had people that you loved. You had your, your grandparents and your parents and your brothers and sisters and your children and your grandchildren all living together in this, in this kind of tribe. And... Normally as well, you know, in the past, you would also have slaves living with you, indentured workers, <laughs> um, <laughs> known, in, known in a funny way as um, unpaid employees. <laughs> and, and these were people who were not part of your family and generally you did not love them. So the people that you loved, your, your grandparents and children, those people were free to do what they wanted. And you also loved them. And those slaves that worked for you were not free to do what they wanted and you didn't love them. They weren't part of your family. And so that helps us to understand how love and freedom are related. And it also tells us something about human history, about human culture, about the way that humans used to live and the effect that that has had on the way that we perceive language and vocabulary and words like love and freedom. And to, to explore this, this idea a little bit further, I want to talk about Iran. Now, Depending on um, who you're friends with on Facebook and, and what websites you visit and, and what newspapers you read, um, maybe you have seen some images comparing Iran in the 1970s to Iran today. And the comparison images are normally sort of quite similar in their format. And one of the most common is is a picture of 
Iranian girls wearing mini skirts and beautiful pastel colored clothing and kind of fashionable jackets. That would be Iran in the 1970s. And it's always contrasted with uh, pictures of of women in Iran today wearing um, niqabs or, um, or burqas. And what's uh, the, the idea here is that something has happened to, to Iran from the 1970s to today. Something bad has happened to Iran. And we can, we can measure that badness by looking at the clothing. And so there's this very kind of westernized idea that we can measure the amount of freedom that women have in a society by measuring the length of their skirts. And so women who are in a society and can wear mini skirts are free. And women who are in a society uh, and they're completely covered are not free. (laughs) Now, I think that it doesn't take a lot of thinking. It doesn't take a lot of reflecting to realize that, that that idea is ridiculous. That that viewpoint is, again, something that we get from culture. And the, the relative freedoms that Iranian women have now compared to the 1970s, well, they are not related at all to the clothing that they wear. And if you ask the question, well, is Iran different now than in the 1970s? Well, the answer is, of course, yes. And if you ask the question, well, do women in Iran have less freedom now than they do in the 1970s? Well, that question is a bit more complicated and... In fact, if you if you look on on Wikipedia or other websites which which talk specifically about women's rights in Iran, you'll find that in general, women in Iran enjoy quite a wide range of freedoms similar to what you would find in most Westernized countries. You know, the freedom to uh, get an education, to work, to make choices about uh, what they wear and where they go, uh, etc. And I'm not going to talk about Iranian culture and the specifics of Iranian culture because I'm definitely not an expert in Iranian culture and, you know, I've never even been to Iran and it's not my field of expertise. But the reason that I'm talking about all this is because it's an important question in, especially in in English-speaking countries right now, does gendered language cause sexism? And can gender-neutral language fix the problem of sexism? And, for example, in the previous Daily Digest, I talked about some very recent research that showed that um, using gender-neutral pronouns reduces the, the prominence of men in in a in a in a society's discussion so using gender neutral pronouns can actually 
be of great benefit to the LGBT community. But what's important to realize is that the effect comes from us making that decision as a society. The effect doesn't come from the language itself. It comes from our decision to use that language, not the other way around. And to illustrate my point further, I would like to look at the Persian language, which is spoken in in Iran. Now, Persian is interesting to me as as somebody who's interested in in language because Persian is actually an Indo-European language, which means that Persian is related to English and French and Portuguese, and it's not related to Arabic, for example, even though its geographical situation is is right there in, in the Middle East. Now, the other really interesting thing about the Persian language is that it is genderless. So, for example, in English and lots of other languages, uh, we have pronouns for he and she, and also sometimes it for inanimate objects. But Persian doesn't have any of that. It has one single pronoun, u, which is used for both he and she. And listen to this. In Persian, the same nouns are used for both male and female professionals. For example, bazigad means both actor and actress, and pishkhedmat means waiter or waitress. And so possessive adjectives, object pronouns, um, normal adjectives, none of those in, in the Persian language spoken in Iran have gender. So if we ask the question, has gendered language had an effect on English society, well, we can look at Iran and say, well, there's a language which has no gender, and it's a country which has seen various changes in in culture, various changes in the freedoms of the people, various changes in the society's attitude towards women, various changes in 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 sex sex equality, gender equality, and clearly none of those are in any way related to language gender because there is no language gender in Persian. So it's clear that we cannot solve and we will not solve problems like. Um, you know, discrimination against women or discrimination against minorities simply by changing language. The way we solve it is by changing our culture, which therefore forces us or encourages us to change the language we use. And that sort of brings me on to onto another sort of similar piece of, of popular um, popular thinking about language, which is that, you know, each language has this kind of unique way of looking at the world, and each language has this effect on on the people that is produced purely by the language. You know, that the language has 
some sort of magical effect on its own, separated from culture. And, and I'm going to show you that's not true. So uh, back, back in 2013, there was a, a mathematician and economist called Keith Chen. And Keith Chen did a TED Talk, and he released this paper. And the paper was called The Effect of Language on Economic Behavior, Evidence from Savings Rates, Health Behaviors, and Retirement Assets. And you may have seen this TED Talk. It was very popular. A lot of people have sent me links to it. Um, you know, it's just kind of a, an interesting and surprising uh, topic. And basically what he did was he looked at languages all over the world that have different ways of talking about the future. So, for example, in Spanish, if I want to talk about the future, I conjugate my verb directly. So my verb is, is contains futurity. In English, it's expressed slightly differently. In English, I would use an auxiliary like will to, to talk about the future. So it's not conjugating the verb, but it's indicated with grammar. But in other languages, like for example in Mandarin, the future is only indicated by context. There's no grammar which indicates the future. So, you know, in English, if I said tomorrow, I will go to the shop. In Mandarin, they would simply say, tomorrow I go to the shop. And you know that it's the future from the context. And so Keith Chen had this idea that languages which indicate the future strongly, like Spanish, for example, where you conjugate the verb, and Mandarin, where you do not strongly indicate the future, that people would have different ways of thinking about the future. And specifically, he thought that, for example, in Mandarin, if you're not really separating now, if you're not separating the present tense from the future tense, then you're more likely to make good decisions now because you don't see the future as something distant. The future is kind of strongly connected to the present. And this is, I'm going to read from the abstract of his paper. He said, um, empirically, I find that speakers of such languages, they save more, they retire with more wealth, they smoke less, they practice safer sex, and they are less obese. Now, it seems like a pretty kind of solid argument. There was a lot of data collected. There was a lot of very clever and very thoughtful analysis of that data. But there was one massive problem. Keith Chen didn't account for culture. <laughs> and when you have a hard science like mathematics or economics or physics... You know, sometimes they, these kind of theoretical kind of observations and theoretical, um, you know, uh, theories and hypotheses, you know, they can be tested without the soft sciences, without psychology or linguistics. But something like this, trying to separate the way that people save money the way that people 
practice safe sex the way that people are less obese. If you try to separate that from culture, you're going to fail. And shortly after he published, well, um, two years after he published the paper, another group of researchers published this, Future Tense and Economic Decisions Controlling for Cultural Evolution. And what they did was they took Keith Chen's data and they they made um, allowances for culture. They corrected for culture. And when they controlled for culture, they discovered that all of these correlations disappeared. And it just it just shows how powerful culture is in basically everything that we do. And kind of any attempt to to turn language into some type of system of rules and 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 system of just abstract concepts Anytime you try to turn language into maths, into science, you will fail because language isn't science. Language is art. And you cannot separate language and culture. So, again, I, I hope that you found this, this podcast interesting and I hope that it's given you a, a deeper understanding of why and how language and culture are are interconnected and you know some of the myths and misconceptions about how and in what way language affects the way we think i'm christian this is kangaroo english i'll see you in class mm-hmm.